from Luke, the 12th chapter. I'm going to begin in the 42nd verse, and then I'm going to drop down to the 48th verse, the last part of the verse, and it says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise servant, whom his master will make ruler over his house? to give them their portion and food in due season. Then we drop down to the 48th verse and it says, but, and I'm going to read just the last part of the verse and it says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. You know, it's interesting when you look at the scriptures, and especially when you look at the parable of the, the talents, how one received one, one, three, and one, five, or depending on which account you use. God never expected anything of them that they didn't have. He asked the one of the one because he had the one. But he didn't ask five. He asked one. And what's interesting is each one, according to that portion, experienced increase in their life. But he never asked them to give beyond what they could give. But what's the significance of it? The significance of it is that, you know, all of us have something to give. You know, Dr. Cole taught us that Really all we have to give in life is our time, our talent, and our treasury. So we have all those three areas in which to give. And, and so in all those three areas, we're supposed to be givers. But he doesn't ask us to give something that we don't have. You know, God doesn't ask me to perform open heart surgery on you. Can I hear a praise the Lord? Amen. But he asked me to preach to you. You know, and so each one of us, we have gifts, we have talents, and we have treasury. But God says as we use that which he's given unto us for his glory, he's the one that grants us the increase. You know, so it's exciting about giving time is I don't have to worry about what anybody else is giving. I just give what the Lord has given me to give. And as I do that, he says he is the one that's going to produce or create the increase in my life. And so our increase, our, our, our giving produces more so that we can give more into his kingdom so his kingdom can be furthered. And so as we give today, don't worry about what anybody else has given. The Bible says as we've purposed in our heart, we've purposed to give, so let us give cheerfully, knowing that God grants us the increase. Ushers, if you come forward, let's pray and let's receive today. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have today to give of our tithes and offerings. Father, we don't give out of compulsion or because we have to, but we give out of a cheerful heart. We give because we want to. We give because we serve such a mighty God that grants increase in our life. 
so, Father, as we give of our tithes and offerings today, we give in faith, expecting increase, but expecting so that we might have more to give into your kingdom. So, Father, we do it in Jesus' name that we give. Amen. Let's receive the offering. never distracted by anything on a Sunday morning but um, I just couldn't help but notice Emily's shoes this morning Emily would you hold your, up your foot <laughs> you, you notice I, I'm, I'm just thinking if Steve wore those they would all be the same height up here <laughs> Like I said, certain things, you know, at times they just. But I, I'm, I'm thinking that has that has to be murder on your ankles. That 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 girl has to have some really powerful ankles. Cause, huh? She stands for a living. Yeah. Well, but not on that. Glory to God. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to the book of Revelation. Let's get back to something serious, even though that was really edifying. <laughs> Revelation is the first chapter. And I want to read the 12th verse is where I'm going to begin, verses 12 and 13. And it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw a golden, uh, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about his chest with a golden band. You know, it's interesting about the book of Revelations, I think so often we... We avoid it, but I've just been looking at these, especially these first couple of chapters of Revelation. <clears throat> and, you know, really, Revelation isn't the true title of the book. It's not about um, the tribulation. It's not a book about the end times, although tribulation and end times you find in Revelation. But it's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess the thing that's been hitting me is because I, I think for so many years, for so many of us anyway, maybe not all of you, but for so many of us, <clears throat> we've avoided 
or been taught to avoid revelation because nobody can understand it because of all the allegory and everything else that's in there. But as I've been focusing upon these verses and so forth, I began to realize something. Since it's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, can we have a true revelation of who Jesus is without the book of Revelation? You know, we can see a lot of stuff about him, but do we really understand how he loves? Do we really understand, you know, how magnificent he really is. And so here he's talking about how in the myths, here, here John is. He's on this barren rock known as Patmos that they turned into a, a prison, totally barren. Uh, the, the biggest effort on that island was to survive. And so here he is, John, the Apostle John. John the Beloved. He's on this island and he gets this revelation. And it's talks about the mystery of the church. Now, I grew up in, in church where uh, you know, you, you've heard the expression quiet as a church mouse. And the reason of that expression is because when you went to church, everything was quiet. I mean, some of the stuff that we sang, you wouldn't have dared sung in the church that I went to. You know, it would have been totally sacrilegious, not just because of what we sing, but because of the volume. You know, and so it was, it was quiet. We were reverent. And, and what happened is, many times, it, it was attributed to the building because even if you went into that building during the week when nothing was going on, you didn't, you didn't run in the sanctuary, you didn't respect the sanctuary because it was the church. Well, we, we have evolved and we now know that we are the church. We, as individuals, we make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also see something, though, that has taken place through this evolution, is because we've lost the reverence, if you will, for the building, we've lost sight of what the church is, the true church. We've lost a reverence for the church, the true church. And so what I want to do this morning is I want you to see how important the church is to Jesus. And I don't just mean in a flippant and passing way. I want us to understand how important the church is to Jesus Christ. Here he talks about the church. He talks about Jesus standing in the midst of the, 
the seven lampstands, if you're reading some of your translations, it says candlestick. Candlestick isn't a very good translation because it doesn't depict what this lampstand really was. But here Jesus is, and, and I want it to be more to us than just simply a intellectual exercise so that we can leave here and we can say, well, you know, Pastor Dave gave us a definition of what the, the, the candle stand really or the lamp stand really is. No, we've got to have an understanding of what church is and what the church is to Jesus Christ and how important the church is to Jesus Christ. If we back up just a few verses to verse 11 or verse 10, still in Revelation 1, it says, Paul is speaking and it says, or excuse me, John was speaking, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. In other words, he wasn't expecting anything. It, it, it took him by surprise, but he, but he heard this voice, and he, he turned around and, to see what the source of it was. And so then we get into verse 12. And we get into verse 13 and it says, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And so there Jesus is standing in the midst of it. Over in verse 20 it says, it tells us what these lampstands were. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so we're not going to get into the angels this morning. We're just going to talk about the lampstands. And he says they represented the seven churches. Now, we know as we study history and biblically, biblical archaeology and so forth, we know that the seven churches that he makes reference to that these seven lampstands represent were actually seven churches in Asia Minor in the Roman area. And so he's making reference to these, the, these seven churches, John is. But it also, what he's saying to these churches applies to the churches of today. And so it's very interesting, and, and you see this many times with, with the prophecies that we see in the Bible, that they have, <clears throat> they have different meanings, more than one meaning. It can be making reference to a particular age, or a particular people, or a particular time, but it's also making reference to something of the future. And that's what we see here, because what John saw in this vision. He saw these seven churches speaking of the day that they were in right, right then, but they also made reference to the future, made reference to the church today. 
And we'll talk about that a little more as we go along here. But getting back to verse 12 again, he uses the word golden in verse 12. And it's the word keros in the Greek that doesn't mean that much to us, but I just simply use it because that word is used in a very specific way, not only in the Bible in the Greek, but in literature, in Greek literature and so forth, that it talks about gold. But not just any old gold, it's talking about pure gold. And so when he's talking about these seven golden lampstands, these are lampstands that are made of pure gold. Now, the gold that it's talking about can be talking about a gold coin, gold in general, gold jewelry, gold fabric, or any other item that's fashioned out of, out of gold. And we know that we assign certain uh, numbers to gold to designate its purity and so forth. And in ancient times, they had the same thing. There was, there was the pure gold that we're talking about here. But then there were other golds where there, was, there were other metals, metals added to it. And it wasn't, it wasn't considered pure. Uh, it was less costly because it wasn't in refined in the same way or there were other elements that were added to it uh, that took away its value. Pure gold was considered to be the highest quality and most desired form of the metal. And so what he's talking about here, he's talking about the church being made of pure gold, that which is most desired. You know, one of the things we see as we go through the Old Testament and we, we see the building of uh, the ark, or not just the ark, but the tabernacle, and then later on, the temple. And we see, <laughs> we see the amount of gold that is used. And we see that, we say, well, with God, it's nothing. Well, I don't believe that it's necessarily true. I believe with God it is something. And so what he's doing is he's revealing to us how valuable he sees these places of worship. And so then you carry that over to what we're looking at here in, in, in Revelation. And he talks about these candlesticks that represent the churches of the day and the churches to come. And he, they're made of pure gold. He's talking about how, how valuable, how costly they are. And that's how he sees you and me. He doesn't see you and me as something low grade. We oftentimes see ourselves that way. We oftentimes see the church that way. Because we see it as um, having faults and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Heard somebody say this one time, you know, <clears throat> if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. 
you'll spoil it. Because none of us are perfect. Now there is the perfect church. But see, that's because that's how God sees us. You know, we, we see ourselves with our imperfections and so forth. But you know, God doesn't see us that way. And we talk about that. We talk about how we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And how in spite of all of my imperfections, God still sees me as perfect. He's given me the, right, the white robe of righteousness to wear around. But you know what? <clears throat> he doesn't just see us individually that way. He sees us as the church that way. And we have individuals in the day that we live in who basically feel like it's their calling, it's their responsibility in life to find fault with the church. We've not been called to find fault with the church. We've been called to be a part of the church so that the church can mature and the church can demonstrate the righteousness and the holiness that belongs to us. You know, that's why the body of Christ is so important. It isn't something that we just simply talk about. It's something that we are part of. And as being a part of the body of Christ, the body of Christ should be better off with me being part of that. Because I ought to be lifting up the body of Christ, not tearing it down, not taking it down. Raw gold is typically discovered encased in other rock. It's not something that, you know, I know in the movies it's always laying on the surface, but by and large, gold isn't just laying around. If, if somebody wants gold, they've got to They've got to work for it. They've got to dig for it. You know, and you read stories about the gold rush in Nevada and California and other places. Those individuals had to make tremendous sacrifice in order to find that gold. Because it wasn't just laying around. It took, it took commitment for them to, to find that gold. It took it took work on their part to find that gold. And we hear stories of those that, that made it big. But you know what? That was, that was a minority. Because most did not make it big because of the effort and because of the commitment that was necessary to be able to accomplish that. And so when they're looking for gold in the natural once the gold-bearing stone is removed from the, the earth, it's crushed in order for the gold to be exposed. And so you find a vein, what happens when you pull it out? You've got to crush it. And then after it's crushed, water is forced over it. And the reason for that is to, to remove the fragments, the impurities that are the chunks that are not the gold. So it removes it. But then after that takes place, after it's been removed, it's placed in the fire. And the fire is there to melt that gold. And once that, that gold at a high temperature begins to melt, 
all the impurities begin to rise to the surface. And they don't do it just one time. They, they do it and they skim off the scum and then they heat it up hotter and they skim off more scum. I never did it with gold. I did it with a less valuable material. But you know, when I was plumbing, when I started plumbing, um, when we were working with pipe and so forth, um, like when cast iron was put together, we didn't have these rubber clamps that they use now. You had to pack them with this material and then you had to, you had to take lead and you had to pour lead in there. And in, in Minnesota, where I was plumbing at the time, <clears throat> all of your, even the underground, it had to be tested and it had to be able to hold a test of five pounds for 15 minutes of air. And so you'd have to get that sealed up to an extent that you could you would pump air in there, close everything off, pump air in there, and it'd have to hold five pounds for 15 minutes. If it didn't, you, you failed the test and you had to find out where the leak was, and if you couldn't find out where it was, you had to tear the whole thing out and start over again. And so with this lead, what you would do is you'd, you'd have these burners and you'd put it in this pot and you'd heat the lead up and it would melt. And, and after it had melted, there'd be all this scum on the top of it. You'd take your ladle and you'd, you'd, you'd skim it off and you'd throw that junk aside. And you'd say, well, it's just, a, it's just a sewer pipe. But see, even with that lead, if you didn't get the impurities out of there, when you would pour that lead and you would tamp it tight, every place where there was an impurity, there would be a defect. And as a result of that, you'd have a leak. You wouldn't pass a test. And your boss wouldn't be happy with you because you'd have to tear it all out and do it all over again. You'd get rid of the impurities. That's how it was with gold. Because if you don't get rid of the impurities, what happens is if you mold it, you're going to have a defect in it. You're going to have a flaw in it. And it's not going to be pure. And as a result of that, it's not going to have the same, the same value. Now, we don't often use pure gold for much of anything because it's so soft. You know, if, if you have something that's, that's pure gold, if you have a ring that's pure gold, if, uh, if you bump it on something, you're, you're going you're gonna to crush it. And so most of the gold that we use for jewelry and so forth, it's not the pure gold that we're talking about here because it's too soft. So he looks at us and he sees us as pure gold. Sometimes we're a little bit softer than we should be, but we're pure because of what Jesus has done for us. If the impurities in the metal are not removed, like I said, they will become a defect that decreases the strength and the value of that batch of gold. And so that intense heat is necessary to bring that to the surface. Now one of the things that we notice in 
We see it even in the Bible. We see where gold in its purest form was often owned and it belonged to the kings. They'd have cups of it. They would have um, plates made of it. Everything would be, it would be pure gold. It wasn't, it wasn't impure because one of the things about pure gold is not like silver. It, it doesn't corrode. It doesn't rust. You know, you can take a gold coin and they, they bring them up out of the sea and they've been laying in water for hundreds of years. And they bring that gold up and may have dirt and stuff on it, but they clean it off and, and it has the luster that it had when it was minted. Because pure gold, it doesn't, it doesn't lose it. That's why, you know, they, they say if you're <clears throat> wondering if that guy got you something that's pure, check out your neck and your finger and see if it turned green. <laughs> If it turns green, it's uh, not pure. It's because of the, the defects and so forth that are in it. But we see it in the Old Testament. Remember when Bathsheba came to King Solomon to see his greatness, to see his wonder, and her response to him was, was you know, Solomon, what they described concerning you wasn't the half of it. But you know, what's, what's interesting is that Solomon was the richest of the king. I mean, he was, he was probably to this day the richest king that ever survived, that ever lived. I mean, we have, we have people that have their billions, but Solomon, in all of his greatness, had if, if it would have carried the same value it has today, he would have probably had more. But gold, it said in the days of Solomon, gold was as any other substance. It was so plentiful. But there was something about gold because gold represented value. And so you would see that if an ambassador or a representative of another king would go visit a king, oftentimes what they would do, they would bring gifts. You know, the Bible says that our gift makes room for us. You know, we like to think of it as being whatever we're gifted in, that it makes room for us, and I believe that. I believe that's an applicable application of it. But if you read it in context, it's talking about money. It says the gift makes room for you or it gives you an audience. And that's how it was with, with Bathsheba. Notice what it says. Now, now she's approaching the richest king that ever survived, that ever lived. She's coming to visit him. And it says in 2 Chronicles 9.9, And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices of great abundance, and precious stones. There never were any spices such as these. The, the, those the Queen of Sheba gave the King of Solomon. And so it opened the door. And so here she's approaching the dude that's got more gold than anybody else. And she brings gold. 
Why? Because she wants to honor him. Do you realize that the one, when the Bible talks about God, that we, the church, that he looks upon us as pure gold, what he's doing is he's honoring the church. He's recognizing that the church deserves honor. And he's telling us as a church in the day that we're in, the church deserves honor. And therefore, who are we to criticize or to, to put down the church? You know, when somebody mines gold, oftentimes they have to go very deep to pull out that gold so that it can be purified. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter. We're celebrating a time where Jesus went really deep. The Bible says that he went to hell, descended into the pits of hell to pay the price for your sin and mine to be able to bring us out so that we might be the church. So that he might begin his work in you and I to, to purge, to purify the church that we, might be, that we might be whole. Now you and I as individuals, the moment that we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But you know what? <clears throat> that doesn't mean that God stopped his work in you and I. He began his work of purification within you and I so that we would fit within the church. So that we could function together within the church. And even though he looks upon us and even though he sees us whole and pure. Remember what one of the elements was of uh, purifying that gold? First was that when it was brought to the surface, it was crushed. You know, <clears throat> it's crushing when we come to the realization of how sinful we are apart from Jesus. It's where repentance comes in. You know, I've said over and over again how much I appreciate the law because it's the law that brought me to the point of recognizing my need for a Savior. And as a result of that, it was crushing to realize that apart from Christ, I have no hope. But in Him, I can find wholeness. But you know... <clears throat> That was, that was the beginning of the process. That wasn't the end. And I think oftentimes individuals look at it, well, I'm saved now, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, God. I can move on with my life. But it's not to be the end. It's to be the beginning point. It's the point where, yes, in the eyes of God, because of what Jesus has done for me, I am now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But there's a process that's begun in my life. 
And that process of purification isn't so that I can be pure in the eyes of God, but it's so that I can walk that life so that through me, the body of Christ can be lifted up and magnified in the earth that people can see that there's hope. I don't know if you've watched the news later, lately. It's hopeless. I made the statement to the elders um, Friday morning. You know, I, I, I said I can't, I can't watch the news because it's just so, it's such a downer. Because stuff that 25 years ago we said would never happen is happening. And I said, you know, I don't, I'm not concerned about me. I'm old. But what about my grandkids? <coughs> what about my great-grandkids? What about if Jesus tarries my great-great-grandchildren? And you know, <clears throat> can, I, can I meddle just a little bit? <clears throat> it might make you mad, but forgive me. You know, people don't see the importance of the church. You know, our attendance is down here. But we look at our roles and, you know, we, we have practically the same numbers that we've always had as far as people that consider Abundant Life their home church. But the numbers are down. Why are the numbers down? Because people are busy. But I wasn't there, but there was a Rama meeting uh, last week, and, and everybody that shared there, <clears throat> they, they talked about how it's a universal problem, that people are not consistent like they once were at going to church. And so why is that? Because we don't see the church as being important. Now, I'm the church. But we're the church. We need the church. And why do we need the church? I don't want America, for the sake of my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, and if Jesus should tarry, my great-great-grandchildren, to go through a dark age. Now, there will always, there will always be a, what do you call it, remnant. There will always be a remnant. There always has been a remnant. Even in Europe, during the dark ages, there was a remnant. But I don't want the church in America to go through a dark age. How do we keep that from happening? Recognize the church and its significance and its importance. Listen to me. If the church is important to God... The church is important to you and I. If the church is valuable to Almighty God, then the church ought to be valuable to you and I. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And so, I don't want to just share a bunch of facts to you. I don't want to just share a nice story about how gold is purified. I want us to know how gold is purified so that we know how we were purified. 
Because he doesn't look at us as a mixture. He looks at us as pure gold. That's why the Bible says that we got to come out of the world. We're, we're in the world. We're involved in the world. But we're not of the world. And if we're of the world, what happens is we try to get that mixture that's taken place. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. It leaves a defect. It leaves us open to failing the air test because of the defect. The tests are going to come. The fire is going to come. But the fire comes not to destroy us. What happens? Every one of us go through tests. Amen? Every one of us. But what is it going to do in our life? Is it going to build us up? Is it going to strengthen us? Is, is, it, is it going to purge us and make us stronger in the things of God? Is it going to weaken us? You hear of people that go through a disaster, a crisis, and it destroys them. But you also hear of individuals that go through a crisis and they come through stronger. Not that they enjoyed it, not that it was good, but they came through stronger. You know, I've shared this with you before. You know, when I first heard the Word of Faith message, <clears throat> I thought the Word of Faith message and walking in faith meant that I would never have any problems again. That faith meant no problems. Whew. Boy, did I miss that one. But you know what faith does? It empowers me to deal with every crisis that comes my way. Now don't misunderstand me, I don't always pass them with flying colors. But once I get my focus right, things begin to turn around, things begin to change. So that's what he wants to do in our lives. He wants to make us whole. You know, so 2,000 years ago when the church was birthed, after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, he began to wash the church, began to purge the church, began to make the church whole. Let me tell you something. I, and I, I, I can be guilty of it as well. I watch some of the stuff on TV and I just, I, I've learned rather than criticize it, just turn it off. You know, there's, there's stuff on the radio. I just, it just, it just, Drives me bonkers. I'm thinking, I hope nobody's listening to this. And I know people are listening to it. But rather than be critical, turn it off. Because he wants us to build up the church. Not to tear the church down. How many of you know it's so much easier to be critical than it is to be positive? So much easier because it stands out. And I think another reason why it often is is because if they do have something positive, we're so jealous of it, we won't acknowledge it. Well, thank you for that one grunt. <clears throat> but it's the truth. And so 2,000 years ago, he began to 
purge the church, to purify the church. But you know what's interesting is these seven churches that he referred to as golden, pure lampstands were messed up. They really were. They, they had some issues. They had some problems. But, you know, that's what I love about Hebrews, the 11th chapter, where it's, we call it the chapter of faith, heroes. And he talks about these individuals of the Old Testament. Now, I read the book. These guys, they had some issues. But he talks about Lot. And his reference to Lot is righteous Lot. That's his description of Lot. I'd have said this nephew of Abraham that screwed up over and over and over and over again. But no. Righteous Lot. Looked at Abraham. Did bring up Abraham's junk. Didn't bring up Noah's junk. Talked about them as if they were perfect. Do you know why? Because in his eyes they were. And that's how we are in his eyes. And that's how we're to, to see one another. Let's, let's turn over there to Revelation, the second chapter. I'm just going to touch on different verses because it talks about these seven churches and some of their shortcomings. And so he's, he's speaking this to them as, as prophecy and, you know, concerning them. But see, they're, they also represent the church today. And so when I read through this, we read these things and we can see, well, I can see that in the church today. I can see that in the church today. Yes, we can. But you know, how do we, how do we overcome that? Well, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. But, but that word of our testimony has to be in us so that it can come out of us. And so it's still the washing of the water of the word that purifies us, that cleanses us. Now, I'm not talking about positionally, but I'm talking about experientially. In our life, as a Christian, experientially, we're to serve God with a pure heart. Now, positionally, I'm everything that I'm ever going to be in Christ Jesus. But experientially, I'm not always as patient as I should be. I'm not always as kind as I should be. I'm not always standing in faith as strongly as I ought to be. And so because of that, I still need the washing of the water of the word in my life that gets rid of the dross, that impurity that's going to hinder me along the way. But listen to some of these things. In Revelations 2.4, he talks about how they left their first love. 
You know, and I think sometimes we need to think back to when I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That was the only thing that mattered. They lost their first love. Why do we lose our first love? Because we get distracted. There are so many other things that interfere and, and get our attention. Then verse 5, he talks about how they spiritually fail. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, where they were at the first. Well, you know, if we've fallen from that, there's only one way to replenish it. Get up. And so he says we, we need to recognize that, but then don't stay there. We see in Revelations 2, 14 and 20 that they had false doctrine. In verse 14 it says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold on to the doctrine of Balaam. And so they held on to false doctrine. He's not saying that it doesn't matter what we believe. It does. Because it's imperfection that'll keep us from being and fulfilling everything that he's called for us in our lives. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce. Notice, called herself a prophetess. She's a false prophet. But they allowed it to continue. And how do you, how do you overcome? Uh, recognize a false prophecy by recognizing the truth. And how do we recognize the truth? As we're washed in the water of the word. So that when something false rises up, we immediately recognize it. I'm sure you've heard this. But I've heard that when they train people in, in uh, uh, departments to, to recognize counterfeit money, they don't put them in a room with a bunch of counterfeit money. They put them in a room with the real thing. They have them examine that money. They have them smell that money. They feel that money. They get to know that money like they know the back of their hand. They know what real money looks like, smells like, hopefully not tastes like, but they know money. And so when they encounter counterfeit, something goes off. Something's not right with this. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. And they examine it and they find out that it's, that it's counterfeit. You want to know how you overcome that which is false in the world? It's not by dwelling on that which is false. It's by dwelling upon the real thing. I remember when, I, when we were first saved, there, there, was a, there was a demon behind every bush. And, you know, we're, we're casting devils out of everything. We had books on devils, read books on devils. And you know what? They obliged us. Every time we turned around, there was another devil manifesting someplace. But then we found out something. We found out about faith. We found out that we had authority. We found out what Jesus had truly done for us. And we began to focus upon what Jesus had done. 
And all of a sudden, the enemy stopped dominating our thoughts. And the moment that he stopped dominating our thoughts, he stopped dominating our lives. Now don't misunderstand me. I believe in demonic activity. I believe that I have authority to cast out devils in the name of Jesus, and I do it. But I also know that I'm not going to allow them to entertain me. That I have authority over them. And because I have authority over them, they have a tendency to shut their lousy mouths. I don't know why I went there, but I went there, just saying. <clears throat> well, I know why I went there. Because what are, you, what are you focusing on? If you're reading books on negativity concerning the church, you're going to feel negative towards the church. But you know what? If you read books, the book, and see God's value of the church, and you begin to focus upon that, you once again begin to see all the potential that's there. Talks in Revelations 2, 6 and 15 about the Nicolaitans and how they allow them to continue in their midst even though they know that they're, they're false. You know, the Word of God will drive out the enemy. There's a might, there's a power when you begin to use the Word of God. You don't have to worry about so much about combating with individuals. You just speak the truth. And all at once, they just don't want to deal with you anymore. In Revelation 3, talks about they had works that were weak and ready to die. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Strengthen what is there. Rather than dwell upon the weakness, we begin to dwell upon the strengths that which is still available. Their works were incomplete. You know, we're not done until we're done. And we're not done until Jesus calls us home. And so that means we continue the work until then. It says, they struggled with strain from fire. They struggled with staying on fire with the Lord. I better read that one, verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. There's another one, they're lukewarm. We're going to see that in the next verse. I could wish that you were hot or cold. They didn't stay hot. They didn't stay excited about the things of God. It's not talking about the temperature of the room. It's talking about the temperature of the church. It's talking about the temperature of the, of the individuals. You see, if you're hot for God, don't remove yourself from the church. Press in. You know, I'm a 
probably shouldn't confess this, but I'm a touchy-feely person. Yeah. And uh, so at, at night, I like to know that Becky's there. So I like to reach out and touch somebody. And there's only one there to touch. And I'll get my leg over there or whatever, and all of a sudden I hear, will you please get over? You are so hot. I know that. Tell me something I don't know. You know, and all of a sudden, the blankets come flying off. And they fly on top of me, just which I need. Double layer of blankets. But see, <clears throat> that hotness of me carries over. You hot for God? Don't separate yourself. Press into the church. Why? Because the church needs you. You see, church isn't just about you. Church isn't just about me. Church is because we need one another. You see, we, we heat one another up. Glory to God. You know, you, you, you people that go to concerts, you know this. I mean, you, you come to church and you stand there like a, like a, well, how do you stand like a bump on a log? <clears throat> you stand there. I've seen the pictures of you at these concerts. You're nutso. You're embarrassing. But you don't care. You know why? Because the person next to you is. Oh, the music is just so wonderful, I can't, I can't contain myself. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You're that way because everybody else is. Amen. I mean, you're going to tell me, no offense, Hank, but you're going to tell me, you, you go to country western thing and people act the same way, it's because... You know, is it just because of the... No, it's because everybody else sits. Well, maybe it's because of the individual that's playing because you idolize them. How about coming to church and idolizing Jesus and stop caring about what everybody else is thinking? Yeah. Oh my, I think I just started meddling on that one. But it's the truth. Pastor, why are you, why are you saying these things? Because I'm concerned about the church of Jesus Christ. I don't want to go through a dark age. I won't. But you know what? I want something there for my children. I want something there for my grandchildren. I want something there for my great-grandchildren. And you know what? No offense. You ain't going to get that on TV. You need a physical body to come together with to be encouraged with, to be built up with, to be enthusiastic with, to glorify God with. Because then it'll carry over. 
Lukewarm. Several years ago, I heard this definition of lukewarm. It's room temperature. That's why he's talking about you're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. Whatever it is that's going on around you. If you're in church and everybody's screaming, you're in church screaming with everybody. If you're someplace where everybody's down, you're down. Why? You're lukewarm, whatever the atmosphere is. That's what's going to determine where you're at. We've got to make a determination. We've got to make a decision. Because I'll tell you something. Sometimes in this world, you've got to decide to be different. Because this world will take you where it wants to take you. And if you don't make the decision, I'm not going to be like this. I'm not going to allow the world to dictate to me any longer. This was going to be a short message. They were Yeah, I know it. They were strongly rebuked by the Lord. In other words, he rebuked them. They were told to repent of wrong attitudes and actions. Well, pastor, we still have to repent? Yes. Repent means to change. Change from our wrong attitudes and actions. They weren't perfect. We're not perfect. Your church is not a perfect church. Thank God. The body of Christ as a whole is not perfect. But they serve a perfect God who's wanting to work in our lives to bring about the change that we might represent him rightly. One last passage. In 1 Peter first chapter, the 18th verse. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold. And see, even the blood of Jesus is more value than pure gold. I believe the reason that he used the word gold lampstand representing pure gold, is in the eyes of the world there is nothing more valuable. But in the spirit realm there is something so far, far more valuable than gold, purest of gold. And that's the blood of Jesus. Knowing that you were not refined with corrupt things such as silver and gold, but your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. They were redeemed from the traditions of their fathers. But then it goes on in verse 19, but with, this is how you were redeemed, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The perfect, the true perfect, redeemed you and I to perfection, the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that has purged and purified the church. And so when we're critical 
of the church. We're critical of one another. We're critical of the work of Jesus. Does it have faults? Does it have shortcomings? Yes, it does, experientially. But we need to be like God. We need to look at it positionally. Positionally, the church is that golden lampstand in which Jesus is moving in the midst, standing in the midst, declaring we're whole, we're complete because of Jesus. Let's get our eyes off of the circumstances. Let's get our eyes on what Jesus has done. And rather than looking at the negativity and the shortcomings of the church, let's look at what God did through the blood of our Lord Jesus to make us whole, to make us complete. And allow that to give value to that which the world is devalued. And we have a tendency to fall into that same flow. Let's look at the church and see how wonderful it is. And let's be part of the church so that the church can be all that it's supposed to be in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Do you have something? Not now? Okay. I don't know about you. I, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just love the church. I love... I love the part of the church that God's given me the privilege of being a part of. I love our worship more than worship any place else. I love seeing the faces that come into this place more than the faces that come into any other place. I mean, I, I'm familiar with other churches. I mean, I've got sons-in-laws and sons that are pastoring in other places and I know people in their church and I love them but there's just there's something special about my church yeah. hallelujah in my church I don't, I'm not talking about what I pastor I'm talking about the body of believers that I'm a part of and so I want you to be blessed and I want you to know that I want you to be a part of what God is doing for your benefit and for my benefit and for the benefit of everybody that's part of this particular element of the church because it's not the same when you're not here. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Hallelujah. Well, now I don't want to quit. <laughs> but I will. Praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you this morning for Jesus. We thank you, Father, that it's through his blood that we've been cleansed, that we've been washed, that we've been refined. It's because of his blood that you're able to look upon us and see us as pure gold, something of value. We thank you, Father, for 
Abundant Life Ministries, this part of your church. And Father, we want to fulfill your purpose. We know that you're still refining us. We know that you're still working us into that form that we need to be. You're molding us. But Lord, we want to be pliable. We want you to be glorified. And so we value you, Lord. We value your church. We ask today that you would strengthen us and that you would give us eyes to see as only you can, that you might receive the glory. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so as you go, go in his peace, his strength, and his love. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a blessed week.